You're listening to a podcast of New Covenant Church. Join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in Pompano. My name is uh, Chip Relke. I'm one of the servant elders here at New Covenant Church. Adam is not able to be with us here this morning. He sends his greetings, though. He is participating in a wedding of a friend that he has known for years and years up in Jacksonville, I believe. And, and he wishes he would be here, but he will be here next week. And I again want to thank you for being here. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It is not based on what we feel or what we think. It is based on the sovereignty and the providence of God who has already declared us victorious and his people of his own possession. I want to say that Adam has rolled out and began to speak to and will continue, and we will continue in that series today about the promises of God. And one of the fundamental underlying foundations is that every good thing and every perfect gift flows down from the Father of lights, in in whom there is no shifting shadow or wavering light. And while we start talking about the individual promises that God has given to us, the greatest gift that he has given to us is himself. For every good gift and every promise is consumed and fulfilled in him. And so while we look at these individual promises, let us understand that it isn't the promise as much as it is a manifestation of Christ and his desire to give to us himself and the fullness of who Christ is. When Adam was speaking on the provisions of God and he spoke of Abraham who was called by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac, what what God was doing was making sure that the promise that he had given Abraham, mind you, a promise that he had waited 100 years, a promise that was a miracle in and of itself, a promise that was a manifestation of God's faithfulness, but that promise to Abraham did not and was not an idol in Abraham's life. That promises can become an idol. But the reality is, is that God is the fulfillment of all of the promises. And as Abraham prophesied through the thousands of years, he didn't fully understand what he was saying in the moment, God will provide for himself a lamb. He did. And that lamb was the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God also provides for us his strength. Adam spoke of strength. But the strength of God is not like what we think of strength. It's not like superhero strength. For God's strength is perfected in our weakness. And the key to God's strength is contentment. For godliness with contentment is great gain. It doesn't really matter, Paul was saying, as Adam taught last time. Today we're going to be talking about God's gift of the family. The family was a gift and is a gift to God. But as in many things in Man, fallen age, and the sin enters in. The gifts that God gives, sometimes they can take on a different context, a different idolatrous application. And so we want to ask the question, when we first start and we start talking about family, what is family? What is family? I mean, if you go back, say, to the 1950s, you can put the first one up here. I mean, this is kind of a Norman Rockwell feel of what, what a family looks like. You know, you got mom and dad. Of course, mom is dutifully serving food to everybody, and everybody's having a nice conversation, and you have 
the 2.2 kids, you know, and everybody's just having a good time and they're sharing meals. And this is a representation of a type of family. And it's true. If you put it in more of a modern context, this second illustration is a family as well. This is perfectly good family that God himself has blessed. In fact, Moses himself was married to Zipporah, a priestess of Midian, with 95% confidence she's a woman of color. Moses was married to a woman of color. So God blesses families. His idea of families are people that are brought into covenant relationship. But our modern age has come to the point in such of a concept that the idea of a family has taken on a completely different meaning. In fact, I take this quote out of one of the modern cultural magazines. I will not say its name, but if I said it, you would hear it and you would know it. Then I say, quote, they wrote an article on families and modern context of families, and this was their definition of a family. There is no one definition of a family. A modern family consists of those individuals who love each other, who care for each other, and who can, cannot imagine life without each other. Now that sounds pretty good, right? Love, cannot imagine life without each other. That's, that's a family. Well, under that definition of family, the third picture, this is a family. Is that a family? Does God bless that as a family? I mean, the dog loves his master. It doesn't matter about his mood. He comes home from the day and he's all over him, just happy with joy. Master. I mean, the, you've heard the colloquialism, man's best friend is who? But I submit to you that's not a family. No more than any of the other definitions of cultural things that happen, and I'm not even going to go into them because you know what I'm talking about, our family as well. Because God, the giver of a family, Defined family, not man. He defined family and gave family to us as a gift for us, for our building up. And so if we read from Scripture what family is, starting back in Genesis 2 and also in Genesis 1, it says this, For this reason shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to a wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over it every living thing that moves on the earth. So family, first and foremost, is established based on the foundation of a covenant, a relationship. They establish a covenantal relationship of commitment that is beyond feelings, beyond what we think an ideal is, but established in a covenant. And then from that covenant relationship, we go forth and fulfill the purpose which God has created us. Every one of us has a purpose. Now, within those two broad points, family can take on a whole large swath of meaning. I mean, there's a human family. There's also the national family. There's a family of common experiences. Ask any military veteran who has gone through a common experience, the union that happens when you go through a common experience, having gone through boot camp or a battle together. There's the nuclear family, which we showed examples of. And there's the church family. And Jesus, when he established the church family, established it for our blessing, but also for his possession, his desire, his passion, his wants. The family is given as a gift, in a sense, both to you and to God. And so whomever comes to 
God and is brought in from every nation and kindred and tongue. And God, as we've read in our scripture, those who receive him and those who believe in him, these he gave the rights to become children of God, sons of God. We are, in effect, adopted into the family of God. God has no grandchildren. He has children, sons and daughters, from every nation, kindred and tongue, priests, people who minister to him and are grafted in together, and we will talk about that. But in all of this discussion, everything points to Christ. Everything is evidenced in him. And so when we see that we are adopted into the family of God, there are a reality. How does that happen? How are we brought into covenant relationship? How are we brought into from that covenant relationship and then empowered to, to fulfill the purpose for which we are brought into this world? Well, it begins, quite frankly, first and foremost, that we must be enlightened with the light of Christ. We also must not lean to our own understanding. And then in the final walk of our life in the living relationship, we walk by faith in the completed work that is in Christ Jesus and what he did on the cross. And so we see this in first in the beginning of verse 9, that we, each one of us, must be enlightened in the light that is Christ Jesus. In verse 9 it reads, For there was the true light, which coming into this world enlightens every man. Christ enlightens the heart of the world. The light that Christ shines enlightens everyone. Now, what is light? Light is something that reveals that which is exposed, something that reveals what is true. I mean, you, I walk into my garage, I flick on the light in the garage, and things are moving that I don't want to know about, and I don't want to see. That can also happen, you know, inside the house, not just inside the garage. And the reality is, is that God initiated and sent his very best by sending his light into the world. And not everybody's going to receive that light. Not everybody's going to embrace the family of God. But nevertheless, God enlightened them. He enlightened the heart of every man. So what is that, what is that pointing to? I submit to you that Jesus expounded on this and it described what it was that he did when he came into the world. And it's actually two bookends. It's two sides of a common event, which was the life of Jesus Christ. If we read in John 3, 17, and also in verse 19, for God did not send his, world, his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes is not judged. So the one book in is God's grace and his mercy and his steadfast love, that he did not come to judge the world. He desires that none perish, but that all come to the knowledge of the truth. Would that everyone would bow the knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the desire of God's heart. But the other side of the book in is also just as real and is manifested in the life of Christ. In verse 19, this is judgment. This is judgment. That the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. The fact that Jesus came into this world and lived a perfect life, tempted like us in all things, yet without sin, gives us a living example of what God's holiness and his expectations would be. And all we have to do is look at Christ and recognize 
just in the knowledge that Christ, as the Son of God, came and lived and died. There's that judgment, that conviction that comes that I'm not like that. There's a difference between me and Christ, and this is for all men. This is for all men. So the reality is, is that when Jesus said he comes into the world, that is the Holy Spirit, and he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The sin that will condemn is the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ came into him. And this is very important for us, too, because it goes to the foundation of what godly repentance is and what godly repentance is not because there is a repentance of the world. There's a repentance that does not bear the fruit of righteousness. And these ideas, by the way, came from Jim Torrance in his book on worship, community, and the triune God of grace and mercy. And he speaks of the worldly repentance, and we'll call it transactional repentance, where we come before God and we say, God, I'll give you fill in the blank. I'll, usually it's, I'll give you my life. I'll give you whatever it is that you want of me. Just deliver me out of this problem I'm in. Please deliver me. Foxhole conversions, there's many kinds of names on that. And so ask yourself, what is involved in that? A transaction means you have something that's actually of value, that's worth what you're asking for to be given to you. Transactions means I give you an ex and you're going to give me a why. So we go before God, and we say, God, I'll give you whatever. Well, ask yourself, do we have anything that God really needs? God loves us, absolutely. But does God have to have us? The truth of the matter is, we are a lost people, and that God doesn't need anything, that we cannot come before God in any kind of transaction. And God knows this. And so when God offers to us salvation, he offers to us that we come to him in something called, what I'll say, an evangelical repentance, or perhaps a proactive repentance. And that is a repentance that's based not on us going through the list of sins, because we can't remember them all, but a repentance that comes before God saying, such as I am, here am I, an unworthy sinner, save me. Bring me into your presence. I have nothing to offer and everything to gain. And the good illustration of transactional, or I'm sorry, evangelical repentance is when Jesus Christ stood upon the cross and he was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What he was doing and what he was speaking is that the forgiveness of our sins from the fall to the consummation, when he finally returns, have been forgiven, have been nailed to the cross. He bore the sins of the world, not the sins up to that time. He wasn't only forgiving those who were crucifying him then, but he was forgiving you and I. Forgive them, you and I, for they know not what they do. They do not know that when we sin and they seem so enticed and we have been lured into the wages of sin is death that really we're drinking poison to ourselves, we're destroying ourselves. And God says, forgive them, Father for they know not what they do. Now, to only be able to say that, you have to be guiltless. And by that, I mean, think of yourself in an argument, and, and I, this'll, this'll, I think will illustrate it. If you're a husband and a wife, and it's, I'll say this about my relationship, because I know none of here who's married ever gets in a discussion or a disagreement with their wives or their husbands. 
but you have a, an argument that's very strong and energetic, and then each one separates and goes into, the inner, into their separate corners, and then the husband comes up with a great idea, and he comes and he walks up to his wife and says, Honey, I love you, and I just want you to know I forgive you. How do you think that's going to work? You're going to forgive me? What are you talking about? You so-and-so, let me talk. And she starts listing them off, even things you forgot about it. So when Jesus hung on the cross and said, forgive them, Father, he was speaking of his innocence and in his blamelessness, that he had done no offense to us. He had not sinned against us. He came to fulfill God's purpose in making a way for us to have covenant relationship with him. And so when we come before the Lord, he speaks to us and says, you are forgiven. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and are heavy laden. And our attitude is not one that comes before God like in that illustration between a husband and a wife. Well, you forgive me? What do you mean you forgive me? I haven't done anything wrong. No, we have messed it all up beyond hope and repair. And he came to us and says, I forgive you. Come unto me. And so when we repent to the Lord, we're not in some kind of transaction. There is a transaction, by the way. That transaction was Christ transacting our sins and paying for the judgment of our sins. God did a transaction with God. Within God, there was a transaction, but that transaction has nothing to do with us. We don't walk up and barter before God when we repent. We walk up before God, and we bow our head, and we say, Lord, I have nothing to offer. Here am I, such as am I. Take me and do what you will. And this goes completely contrary to what the natural mind would see, which leads us beautifully into the second point, next point, that we must not lean to our own understanding. This is highlighted in verses 10 through 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Christ was rejected. He was cast out. He was an orphan, if you will. He knows what it is to be utterly alone, utterly misunderstood, utterly thrown away. In fact, Isaiah 53, 1 through 3 says this, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, that is Christ, grew up before him, that is the Father in heaven, as a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In fact, he was despised and forsaken, and like one from men whom men hide their face. People would look at Christ and say, really? That's the best God has? Because in the natural mind, God sent his very best, which was his word made flesh, but it didn't come wrapped in a beautiful package that would naturally attract people. In fact, it would be something that you could just look over because it's just ordinary, which testifies to the fact that there is no ordinary in the kingdom of God. There is no one that's so small or so repulsive or so fill in the blank that God doesn't know who you are and even the very hairs on your head and calling you by name to come to him and to be joined with him. So why did Israel reject the Son of Man, the promised Messiah, because they were looking for him. And the obvious answer is that it was God's plan. But there was actually a human manifestation or the reason why that, because God works through the glove, if you will, of human actions 
and human decisions. They, we, we sometimes don't even know how God works, but he still works because he's providence, Joel. He's providential. He rules in the affairs of men, and sometimes we don't even understand. But Israel rejected God in part because he didn't come the way they expected him to. They wanted a Messiah that was going to come as a lion and deliver them from the Roman, the hated Roman oppression, to make Israel the chief nation above all nations, that they would be delivered and set above everybody else, and the whole world would come to Israel for their blessings and for God's grace to be extended through them. And by the way, these prophecies are real. They are in the Old Testament, and they will happen when Christ comes as a lion the second time. But when Christ came the first time, he came as a lamb. So Israel's looking for a lion, and they see a lamb, and they say, what? We don't want a lamb. But the heart of God was that every nation would be blessed in him and be drawn into him. That it wasn't just Israel. In fact, the prophet says, it is too small a thing that you should die only for Israel. But all the world shall be blessed in you, which is also an echo of the Abrahamic covenant that God spoke to Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed in you. But also, Jesus had this knack of doing things that were unexpected. Jesus, why are you healing on the Sabbath? Jesus, do you not know how unclean this woman is that's touching you? Jesus, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? Jesus, why are you making scourge of whip and whipping the religious leaders and turning over the tables? Because the Lord God walked as the Lord God does, which is, he is God, we are not. He does what is pleasing to him, not as pleasing to us. And Jesus challenged the cultural practices and the religious practices of his time. They didn't like that at all. And yet we have the same proclivity to do the same thing. We set up our practices, and we set up those things that we like to do. And we must continually ask ourselves, is this something that God is blessing and working through, or is this something that we just like to do because we like to do it? Because you cannot put God in a box. I cannot put God in a box. I can tell you I've tried many times, and he refuses to go into that box of what my expectations are, what my presuppositions are. And I have to say, thank God he does. Because the things I thought that God was going to do, he didn't do, and I look back on it, and I think, that is wonderful. What a miracle. God is the good shepherd who leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God is the one who calls us by name and knows the beginning from the end. He knows the questions, the ask, and what our needs are before we even know how to form the question. And he, most of the time, in my experience, he's already given us the answer. In fact, he has already given us the answer. For all our questions are answered in Christ Jesus, and every promise is yea and amen in him. And so when we are convicted and we come before him and confess him as sinners, unworthy of the grace and the mercy that he offers to us, and we recognize that God is God and that we do not lean on our own understanding, what he does is he takes us and he roots us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he gives us the gift of repentance to believe in him and to receive him. And then we are adopted into the family of God, as we see in our final point here. That by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family of God, starting in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
even those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That is the will of God. Notice that man has nothing to do with this. God is the initiator. God is the one who presents. God is the one who draws. God is the one who fashions us and forms us. We are called to listen and obey. And he gives us the power. And he gives us the wisdom and the discernment. It is from God, through God, and to God in his glory. And we are as earthen vessels to manifest the wonder of who he is. That is our role. God loves us because he loves us, because God is love. And no one can really fully comprehend that or describe that. But when he loves us and he draws us into his presence, he demonstrated his love by not withholding his only son. And this love in relationship to be adopted is a living love. It's not a one-time event. It's more than mental assent. You know, we can, there's a lot of people, actually, that if you talk about, they don't necessarily attend churches regularly, but they say, well, yeah, I believe Jesus is good. I believe Jesus is a good teacher. I mean, he may be God, too. I, I mean, I believe. This may sound strong, but James said it. I did not sing this. James, Scripture you believe God is one, you do well. The demons believe as well, and they shudder in fear. So mental assent is not sufficient for salvation. So what is sufficient? How is it that we are able to continually count the cost and make sure that we are rooted in the family of God, that we are adopted in the family of God? Jesus describes it this way. And he gives us a perfect allegory in John 15, verses 4 through 7. He says, I abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. He who does not abide in me is taken away as a branch and is burned. Now, my father, he used, he's an agronomist, and he, he used to love exotic plants, and, and he would graft. He'd take a rootstock of a vine, and he would graft branches from different types of grapes from all over the world, and our backyard was filled with grapes that would bloom for months and plants that weren't even supposed to grow in Florida. And in grafting the vine into the root, into the branch, into the vine, there is a absolute necessary step that is required, or that graft will not take, and that graft will die. And that is that the cambium layer on the vine has to be opened up, and the cambium layer that is on the branch has to be united with the cambium layer on the vine. Now, the cambium layer is that little green outer part of every plant. You scrape away the bark a little bit, you're going to see that green part of the plant. That's part of the plant that provides the nutrients and life and moisture and life from the vine up through the roots to the branches. Those cambium layers have to be matched. And if they're not, then the branch cannot receive the life provided to it by the root. And Jesus is saying, when you come to me and abide in me, your cambium, your purpose of life, your strength that you're drawing from, the things that you are 
focused on, the goals and your desires, are drawing its strength and its direction from the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul said it this way, the life I now live, I live to him who was crucified for me, who gave his life up for me. It is not I who live, but Christ in me, the hope of glory. I don't view things as my choices anymore. I view things as what does God would have for me to do. I don't view things about what I want. What would God want? God delights in the small things, every aspect. But the family of God is a family that is first and foremost rooted on direct relationship, on a union, if you will, between our soul through the Spirit to the living God. And that means our priorities are changing. Our priorities are not to do what we want, but what we ought. That we're given strength to refuse evil and choose good. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed, and that is absolutely true. But it's not freedom to go and do whatever we want. It's freedom to grow in our faith in Christ Jesus. It's freedom to readjust our priorities and set them on what the desires and the blessings of heart of, of, of our God is. You see... A relationship with God is a living relationship. He promised that he would never leave us or forsake us, that heaven and earth would pass away before the first stroke or first little diddle of what he has for us would pass away. And it's not what you know. It's not even what you do. It's who you know and the motives behind what you do. do. So we see that Repentance leads to us being free from our own wills and desires. And we see that in Christ, he leads us in the way that we should go, into a loving relationship. This is beautifully illustrated, I think, in an experience that I saw once. There are, peop- there are clubs that are joined together that teach people how to speak publicly. By the way, what you see here today is a living testimony of the grace of God because I am not naturally a public speaker and I'm not naturally someone who wants to stand up in front of crowd. This is God's grace made real. And in like Toastmasters or the Achievers Club or some professional clubs that they get together, they put together people to be able to speak publicly. And I remember the first time they recorded me and they put, and I heard my voice and what they were saying. And I was like, holy cow, what a mess. Can't believe that could be used for anything. But yet, our weakness, this means that we don't boast in ourselves, but God's grace is perfected in our weakness, and his strength is made manifest in our weakness because we don't lean onto our own understanding. But anyway, in this particular event, there was a, they, they give you this topic to preach on or to teach on, and they give you a time limit, and you have to spontaneously stand up and, and quote and, and talk. And you pull topics out of the hat. It causes you to think and be trained on your feet. And they happened to choose a topic of ancient literature, and out of the hat was drawn the 23rd Psalm. That was a pretty broad understanding of what ancient literature is. And one man stood up, and he was the first to go, and he stood up, and he quoted the 23rd Psalm word for word perfectly. And he spoke with elegance and perfect enunciation, and his voice raised, and his voice emphasized the points all properly. 
And when he was done, there was great crowds. Of the people that were there, they were applauding, and there was great adulation, and he had done a wonderful job. It was perfect, actually. And then there was, at the end of it, it was like, oh, man, who's going to go next? And another man, older man, stood up and said, I would like to quote the 23rd Psalm too. Now, this man was a widower. This man was someone who had known the hardship of life. He had children, but there was difficulty even there. He was not very familiar with pain and understanding of what life can do to someone. And he walked up and he to the lectern and he didn't even stand behind the lectern. He kind of stood off to the side and he put his hand to it. And he didn't even look at the crowd. He closed his eyes. And he looked to his heavenly father and he said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in the green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. For thou art with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And at the end of that, he opened his eyes, and he returned to his seat, and there was no clapping. There was no applause. There were some sniffles, and there were about half the crowd with dry eyes. And at the end of the meeting, another member of the crowd went to the first gentleman who spoke and said, Lord, I mean, you spoke so well and so elegantly, and it was really wonderful to hear you, but there was a difference. There was a difference in the way one spoke and the way this old man spoke. Where is that? And without really thinking, he looked at the man and said, the difference is I know the 23rd Psalm. I know the words, and I have been trained in public speaking. But that old man, he knew the shepherd. He knew who it was for whom the 23rd Psalm is for. I'm going to ask the, prayer, uh, the worship team to come up. The Lord that we serve is a living God who desires that none should perish, that he would walk with us through the valley and through the flood, and that while we walk into the fire, that we would come out of it to the other side and not even the smell of smoke would be upon us. That while we walk and we look and say, Lord, this is not possible, yet at a word, the rough places are made smooth and the mountains are made low and the valleys are raised up and the highway of holiness is prepared by the word of the living God and by an outstretched arm to deliver his people. Our God is a mighty God and a strong refuge and he is not one to mess around. All he asks is that we would come to him and bow our hearts and not claim the, any of the glory, not touch anything but to be those empty vessels that he has called us to. To be the yielded 
men and women of God, to be adopted into the family of God through the blood of the Lamb that was shed so graciously for us. And I would ask that if you are here today, that you reflect that each one of us count the cost. And if there are areas in our lives that we struggle with, if there are those parts of our lives that we think that somehow are, are not, that God can't do it, that we ask the Lord by grace and mercy that we do fully release it to him. For God is the God of the impossible. God is the God who delights in showing us that he is the God of the impossible. And so I would ask that as we sing this last song, as we sing and worship and before we go out in here, that we truly come before him and we lay our burdens down at the foot of the cross. That we humble ourselves casting our cares upon him for he cares for us. For at the cross there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's nothing at the cross where anyone can boast. And that we come and we offer ourselves afresh and anew to him. And if you do not know the Lord, that you allow his word under the anointing of the Holy Spirit to convict you and to draw you into the godly repentance, that repentance that says, I have nothing to offer, Lord. I'm at my end. But here I am, such as I am. Take me. And I would ask that you would reflect on that and allow the Holy Spirit to convict. And then you do hand your life and give your life over to him. Yield to the Holy Spirit who is wrestling with your heart, who is convicting you. And recognize that you're not going to be able to understand it, but Jesus understands it. And Jesus will reveal himself to you and reveal to you the answers that you and your heart so desperately needs as you walk with him by faith.